All right, so to the book of Acts, to the book of Acts. Today we're going to keep studying the book of Acts. If you're new, we've been working through it for like the last two years with breaks in between with different, with different series, but uh, we've been working through the book of Acts and we'll be in Acts 16 this morning, so you can go ahead and open your Bibles to that particular chapter, Acts 16. And so far in our study, we've watched the gospel really pulsate out of Jerusalem into the surrounding Gentile regions. And that's kind of the theme of the book of Acts, is just to see the spread of the gospel go from Jerusalem and the Jews out to the Gentile world. And last week, we saw that Paul wanted to revisit those churches that he had planted on his on a previous, his first missionary journey. So he did this first, first journey out, planted churches, and then he wanted to revisit those churches. But he and Barnabas couldn't agree on who they should take with them on the mission. This disagreement actually ended up leading to the formation of two separate teams. And in, in, a, in a sense, it doubled the ministry. Although Paul lost Barnabas, the Lord provided two additional co-workers, Silas and then young Timothy, to accompany him. And this new team then had been assembled and they revisited the churches and strengthened them with the truth, just like Paul had, had intended. And now with the churches healthy and, and secure in the Lord, the team was ready to embark on a new encounter, new endeavor. They wanted to see the gospel pulsate further out into the neighboring Gentile regions, specifically into Asia and Bithynia. We'll look at that in a minute. But surprisingly and almost shockingly, the Spirit doesn't want them to preach there. Did you catch that? The Spirit does not want them to preach there, at least not yet, not on this journey. We're going to see that the Lord has other plans for this team. He's got plans to send them actually further out than they had imagined. And so today we're going to see the beginnings of this new church planting venture as the gospel really breaks out into Macedonia. So I'm calling this next session here, Breaking into Macedonia. And most call this, the, the start of Paul's, most call this, this, um, this story, set of stories here in chapter 16 on, the, the start of Paul's second missionary journey. Since this is the second time that they've launched out from Antioch on a church planting mission. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the ministry in the city of Philippi, which is essentially chapter 16. And it's a fascinating chapter with a, a ton for us to learn about not just the mission, but uh, truths that are going to actually, if they take root, they'll transform your life. So these next several weeks are going to be really, really helpful in, um, in Acts 16 in Paul's ministry in Philippi. But for today, we're just going to kind of begin this mission. And if, if we could summarize this main idea for what we'll see today is, we could summarize it like this. Jesus guides the team to Philippi, where Lydia is converted, and whose home becomes a hub for more ministry. Whoop. Just kidding. Got that, got that, got that a little backwards there. Jesus guides the team to Philippi, where Lydia is converted, and whose home becomes a hub for more ministry. And we're going to see applications just kind of flowing right out of this text here, but 
That's really the thrust of, of this, of this story that we're going to see. And this first scene is all about how the Lord guides them to a new and unexpected region for ministry. And we'll call it guidance to a new region. Guidance to a new region. And that's verses 6 to 12 here. And what's most surprising about this is that initially the Spirit isn't opening doors, but He's closing doors. He's, at times, forbidding them to to go in certain areas. He's working against what they're saying. He's actually denying access to to certain areas for mission. So, just look at these first two verses with me uh, right now. Verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. So really, right out of the gate, we see that access has been denied to the apostles in this second missionary journey on this venture. Now, admittedly, this is a, a little bizarre. The apostles appear to be using a common sense approach here as they're thinking about moving out to the next region. They think we're just going to continue expanding off what we've already already done into these neighboring Gentile areas. And it's going to help if you can visualize this on a map. Okay, So I've got a nice handy little map here. If you can kind of see that. So this star represents where they're, they've currently been, strengthening previous churches in this, this area of Iconium and Lystras, where they picked up Timothy, and the churches in that area that they'd already planted. So then it, the Luke says they attempted to go into Asia, which is that region. Asia is obviously, in the Greco-Roman world, that particular region. Spirit doesn't let them go there. So then they're like, ah, we'll go to Bithynia. And again, the Spirit of Jesus forbids them to go there. So... That's, so they're just, they're basically just trying to work out, this is, this has been evangelized area. This whole area, including Cyprus, has already, already had churches planted on it. So they're just saying, alright, we're gonna, we're gonna spread out this way. And the Spirit says no. And Luke specifically says it was the Spirit of Jesus. Did you see that? Did you catch that? The Spirit of Jesus behind this forbidding. And this reminds us that the enthroned Messiah is controlling where his servants go and don't go. And he's behind what the Spirit's doing here. And we're not told how the Spirit communicated to them. It's kind of a question that I ask as I was looking at the text. How how, how did he make this known? Uh, There's a couple options, perhaps. We know that Paul had prophetic abilities, and we know that Silas also was a prophet. Meaning, a biblical prophet is someone who receives direct revelation from the Lord and reveals that to, to God's people for a specific, uh, for a specific purpose. Particularly during this period where the New Testament was being formed and during the apostolic era. So we know they were prophets and God sometimes gave prophets direct revelation for their specific audiences. Or, it could have simply been that just circumstantially they weren't able to get into those those two regions. I don't know, roadblocks. I don't know what that would have looked like in the first century. I don't know, robbers, you know, uh, angels with flaming swords. I'm not sure. Um, we don't know. 
But what we do know is that God didn't let it happen in those regions, at least not yet. And you're probably asking the same question, why? What, what's God's rationale? Why, why does he not let them do this? Paul and his team had clearly had a good desire to preach the gospel to these regions. This is not a sinful motivation. They weren't trying to, to, to sin or, or get off task. So why the hindering? I thought about this a lot this week. You want to know my answer? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But what is fascinating to me is that we don't see this team fretting over it. Right? We don't see the team questioning God because of it. They didn't complain, even though they had journeyed over 200 miles. They were keenly aware that they are only slaves to Jesus. Jesus is the master. He calls the shots. They merely execute the plan. And beyond that, not only is he this master up in heaven, they, they knew their king intimately. They knew his character. They trusted his wisdom. And they knew, get this, that it, his wisdom far surpassed theirs. They had tasted of his infinite goodness. And they didn't question that goodness in the moment. They rested in his steady, sovereign hand. Even when, for the moment, a 200-mile moment, okay, he appeared to work against them, hindering their efforts. And that's what's got to be in our minds if we're if we're going to to trust the Lord when it, when it appears to be when He appears to be working against us or appears to be hindering us from doing things that we think we should do or that even would be good things. And it, this scene should cause us to reflect and just ask this question: How how do I respond? How do you respond when doors close circumstantially that you really hoped would be open? Or when things happen in your life that seem to go against what seems best to you or for you. So as I was thinking more about this, there's kind of drawn out implications just from how these apostles responded to the Spirit saying, you know, don't go to these areas. I, uh, I wanted just to, to work out some of these implications here. So what do we do when God seems to be working against us? When God seems to be working against us or, or closing doors that we think are, are good doors that we should that we should enter into, or that say it another way, He's He's bringing hard circumstances into our lives. I've just got a list. These aren't comprehensive, but it was just I was just thinking through what's helpful for me and what I know to be biblical and how we respond to some of these things. Kind of taking my cues from from the apostles here. Number one, don't pretend God isn't involved. Don't pretend God isn't involved. He's meticulously sovereign. And he stands behind the close of every door. Luke knew this. So he was able to say, the Holy Spirit didn't let us go there. The Spirit of Jesus forbade us to go here. So he knew that the Lord was behind it, even if it were just circumstances that were, that were working themselves out. So don't pretend God isn't involved. The only alternative to that, if you do pretend he isn't involved, is that someone else is, and it's not God. Someone else is in control of everything, and it's not him. And that is thoroughly anti-biblical. 
God can't be partially sovereign, right? Can't be 99.9%. If he's the 0.1%, how do you trust him, right? So he stands, difficult as this is, he stands behind every closed door. And so, but that's not it. Okay, so okay, God's behind it, but don't fall prey, second, to doubting God's character in it. Don't fall prey to doubting God's character. We're so quick, aren't we, to accuse God of wrongdoing. Of a lack of wisdom. Of not having our best interests at heart. Think, well, I don't don't do that. I don't accuse God of wrongdoing. Do you complain? That's accusing the Lord of wrongdoing because he's ultimately behind every circumstance. So when we're discontent, um, when we're angry, frustrated at our circumstances, it's, it's ultimately going to redound back to the Lord. Somebody who truly knows their God won't complain about the circumstances he's brought. Even when God appears to be working against them in those circumstances. It's incredible. Incredible truth here. So, just an admonition to, to know the Lord. Number three. Speak honestly about the difficulty of the situation. Speak honestly to others about the difficulty of the situation. Mainly, I'm just, others I'm intending the church here. So that others can encourage you and pray for you. So that others can encourage you and pray for you. There's nothing spiritual about pretending that everything's okay. When it's not. When the situation is difficult, the door is closed, hopes are dashed, the job is lost, the girlfriend dumps you. Any of those things. These can be difficult situations. And so speak honestly about them to the church so that others can encourage you and pray for you. Other Christians are a means of grace to help you renew your mind. To remind you of the character of God, who He is, what He's like, and what He's promised for you. That He's not abandoned you. So speak honestly about it and ask the Lord for for what seems best to you. Ask the Lord for what seems best to you. Don't stop asking the Lord to remove the trial, to change the circumstance. That can't be all you pray, but don't stop praying that. There's nothing wrong with that. The Lord clearly modeled that in in his prayer in the garden. He asked that the Lord remove the cup of suffering if it was possible from him. He also submitted to the will of the Father in that, but he was honest and, and requested what, what, what he desired in that moment. So ask the Lord for what seems best to you, but you know at the same time, be willing to resign those requests to him in the moment <clears throat> as he makes his will clear through, through circumstances. Number five, keep pursuing an open door, uh, not giving up in despair. I think one of the temptations with a closed door is that you just kind of you get dejected and you 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 become passive and sort of a, have a good riddance attitude or um, you begin to despair of there ever being any kind of open door, whether it's a job or a, a potential spouse one day or some of those kinds of things. Good things that the Lord that the Lord likely desires for you. So keep pursuing an open door. The Lord's probably teaching you perseverance among many other things in this, this whole endeavor. Don't stop. Don't give in to despair here when the Lord dashes your hopes. And number six, remember that God has greater goals in mind for you and often fulfills them in counterintuitive ways. 
Now that's a mouthful and a lot to write down, so I'll, I'll say it one more time. Remember that God has far greater and more glorious goals in mind for you. Almost always than you do for yourself. And He fulfills those things often in mysterious ways that are counterintuitive to us. In other words, lots of times the way He fulfills these these goals for us, these glorious goals that He has in transforming us into the image of Jesus is through ways we would not expect. So you got to know that, right? Or if if you don't, you're kind of going to be derailed. So remember that. Remember that God has these these goals in mind for you that that will transcend really your own goals for your own life. And then last, just get on board with what God is doing in you and learn to rejoice in becoming more radiantly like Jesus through the circumstance. Get on board with what God is doing in you and learn to rejoice in becoming more radiantly like Jesus through the circumstance. Now, I see my wife back there rocking our <coughs> our daughter. You guys know where this is going. Um, you, you guys have known me. Our daughter doesn't hasn't been sleeping very well at night, and uh, which means repetitive crying, which means sleep deprivation. Um, thankfully, we had a good night last night. So, uh, and I I sleep way better than my wife. So she's she bears the brunt of that for sure. But. One thought that I, I sort of repetitively had over the last few weeks with her in, at times incessant crying is, Lord, you know I have things to do for you in the day that's coming. And I'm not getting sleep. I've got to counsel these X people. I need to, to prepare this teaching. I've got other assignments, writing assignments that I need to get done. And it's all not for me. This is all for you, Lord. You know, this is all to, to serve you and fulfill the mission. And you keep having this baby cry. And I just, you know, I'm, just, I'm not down. Like, he's in control of every single one of those cries. And so it just, it, he seemed to be working against us in very vivid ways um, just through this. And this is common to man. This is not unique to us. But I had to wrestle my heart down in this area, number seven, in getting on board with what God is doing in me. So I made a list. What do I see God doing in me? Started writing them out. I see Him doing this. See Him doing this. See Him doing this. How do I need to think about the circumstance? Oh man, this is a chance to actually love like Christ and deny myself and learn to love my my wife more sincerely through this. Learn to be patient as things don't go our way, as things get a little tense. You know, whenever there's babies waking up in the middle of the night, you know, it's it, things are tense. And so, learning to to steward those those things well. Um, and then, as I began to think about all those things that God was doing, and then as I began to counsel people and just fully aware of my, like, that I'm not, I don't have anything to bring to this counseling meeting. That God, if you're going to work, it's got to be through you in this moment. Just crystal clear, crystal clarity. I'm, I'm praying more. I'm de- more dependent. I'm weaker. And so there's all these things that are happening that I'm starting to see and the Lord's opening my, my eyes to and I'm writing them down. And then I begin to, not always, but begin to start rejoicing in those things and saying, Lord, like, this is good. These are good things. And then instead of complaining to my fellow church workers here and friends and other things, I begin to actually praise God for the trial and for what He's doing in my life. And that brings God glory. Versus, I've had to repent multiple times to my coworkers for complaining about what God's doing. Um, 
So this is all just real time coming right out of my own, uh, my own life here. And just, I want to give that to you not as, as I fail ten times more than I succeed in this area, but just as a, as a model, kind of a road map, uh, a real time thing that, that is just is helpful for me. So this, this get on board thing is not easy. Um, but it's, it's amazing in terms of what the Lord is doing and how he, how he wanna, wants to work through us whenever he seems to be going against us and going against the mission. So, uh, sorry, go back here to the, this phrase here. Now, out of all of this hindering and, and forbidding, the team eventually lands in, in Troas. Whoops, that's why I had that there. Okay. The team eventually lands in Troas, where the, there's a star. Now, that's significant if you know where this is going, because God has, has positioned this team for the region he does want to take them into. So through the kind of the, I don't know why I think about it like this, but like the pinball, as it's kind of going, it's going in the right direction. God is just, nah, not here, nope, not here, and, and just kind of working them all the way to Troas, which now they are perfectly positioned to go into the region of Macedonia, which I didn't circle there, which is here, the region of Macedonia. And that's where God wants to take him. And he reveals what he wants to Paul in, in, in this illuminating vision in this kind of next, next, part of the, next part of the story here. Look in verse 9. So, in uh, a vision appeared to Paul in the night... A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So there's this illuminating vision that that finally the Lord gives the the mission team some direction. And he does it through through this vision. Kind of kind of like a dream vision. It was through it was in the middle of the night. And their interpretation of this Macedonian man's plea for help is that they should go preach um, in the Macedonian region. That was how that, that was the inference they drew from this. And one little, two little quick observations here before we unpack this whole idea of how God guides and through visions. I want you to see two quick things. Number one, notice how. <clears throat> The verbs change to first person plural in, uh, verse 10. When Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought, not they sought. You see that? This is when Luke joins the team. It's pretty cool. Uh, so our author, who has been sort of recounting it, you know, from eyewitness, from, from other testimony, is now actually participating in the eyewitness testimony, um, that we that we have. So this is an interesting observation there. And the second thing I want you to see is just this vision, this man standing there, and he says, come over to Macedonia, and what's the next word? Help us. And then the apostles conclude that they should preach the gospel. So what I want you to see is the most fundamental way, biblically, that we can help people is by giving them the gospel of, of grace. By having them swept up in the new creation that's coming. That's going to last eternally, and they're coming. We should think of the we should think of evangelism in terms of helping people. 
Lots of times we think of it sort of like, I gotta confront this person, and you know, and there is a confrontational element to it, but the end goal is to help them. And so that just, that should just fuel our, our hope and evangelism and, and all those things. We shouldn't be embarrassed by it. We're sincerely trying to help people as they, to come to know the Lord Jesus. Just helpful. That was helpful for me. Um, and what we're gonna see in the, in the ministry in Philippi is actually, they're coming and they are actually helping people. But the Romans are accusing them of doing the opposite. So that's going to, we'll, we'll tease that out more in the, in the following weeks as we look at the ministry in Philippi. So God gives these visions at, at key junctures in the book of Acts. Visions like these. The last one was given to Peter, and it involved God telling him to eat unclean animals. You remember that? God wanted Peter to figure out that he had cleansed the Gentiles, and it's something that Peter would come to learn. And typically, God gives these visions to underscore His will in a more complex situation during the spread of the gospel in these early days, as we see in the book of Acts. To underscore His will in in a particular complex situation. And the pattern in Scripture is that nobody's seeking these visions. You see that? Nobody's seeking them. As though God has to give us a vision or else we're not going to know what to do. Paul and, Bar- Paul and Silas and the team are not seeking the vision. And neither should we. God chooses when and where and to whom He reveals visions like these. And visions are a far cry from the normal way that God desires us to make decisions. Okay? This is abnormal. There's very, I mean, this just happens a few times in the book of Acts. Um, and in Scripture, really, it's, it's very infrequent. So, this is not the normal way God desires to make decisions. However, many times, we find ourselves wishing that God would guide us with a little more specificity. Especially when it comes to decision making, in the hard hard decisions. So, you may not wait for a vision, or you may. This may be different than what you've heard before. You may not be waiting for a vision, but you, you may wait for internal peace to make a decision. Or some kind of intuition of the Spirit's leading you in a certain direction. You might put off decisions until you get whatever that intangible thing is. We might look for subtle signs in our lives or or confirmations of a direction from the Lord before we make a decision. But often what we want is to know beforehand that our decision is going to turn out the way we want it to. If we're just honest, I mean, sometimes, sometimes there's a genuine desire to please the Lord. Okay? Sometimes. I'm not discounting that altogether. But many times, we want to know beforehand that our decision is going to turn out well for us. We want God to guarantee to us that it's all going to be okay. And maybe to put it a little bit differently, we want to take faith out of the decision-making process. We don't want to have to trust God as we make hard decisions. But God desires us to live by faith. Live includes make decisions by faith. He's given us the freedom to make wise, logical, and even desirable decisions, assuming that they're not sinful decisions. And He expects us to use biblical principles and common sense as we live our lives, trusting Him as we make the small, everyday decisions, and as we make the big, life-altering decisions. 
And we can have confidence because he's behind every decision that we make. And so we can make, he'll make sure that we're on plan A. There's no plan B with the Lord. And even in this vision to Paul, we kind of think about like, okay, well, Paul's got the vision. He knows what to do. God didn't give him every detail, did he? It'd be like, it'd be like God saying, all right, go to Canada. Uh, okay, that's helpful. I know I'm going north, but that's about it, right? God didn't even specify which city he wanted them to start in. They just realized that they should go to Macedonia. And whoop, look at there. They're right there in Troas, right across the water. And so then they made a, they made logical, rational plans to go to the next city. They laid out a route and they picked Philippi as the ultimate destination. Look in verses 11 and 12. So, so okay, so they concluded they got to go to Macedonia. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. Lord didn't tell him any of that. Okay? So just underscoring this principle. They just made decisions to fulfill what, what they, they knew the direction they needed to be headed. So they ended up in Philippi, which is exactly where God wants them. And we're going to see uh, some magnificent things happening in this city. So just, again, from a, from a map perspective, Troas, Samothrace was a little island, city area on the island. And then Neapolis is here, is a port city. And then to Philippi. Now, why didn't they stop in Neapolis? Who knows? But we do know that, we do know that Philippi is very, 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 very important. And Luke gives us a hint as to why this is the case. He says it was a Roman colony. A Roman colony. Now, what is that? We, we, we haven't seen this yet in the book of Acts. After Rome took over and began to spread its empire, the city was actually resettled twice with retired military veterans, which means it was real loyal to Rome, okay, to the capital. And it was granted a colony status. Not all the cities were like this. A colony status, which means that this city had all the rights and privileges of Rome itself. In fact, in many of the ancient documents, it's called the nickname of Philippi is Little Rome or Mini Rome. So what we're going to see over the next few weeks, and the reason Luke's drawing this out, and the reason I think they land here, is Luke wants us to see how the gospel impacts Roman culture in particular. And Paul's even going to make use of his Roman citizenship in this city in a really creative way. It's super interesting. And he wouldn't be able to do that unless the city was a Roman colony. And so the point, I think, here that Luke's wanting us to draw out is to see that that Philippi is really our first encounter that we've seen yet with the greater Roman Empire. And it's preparing the way for Paul, as you know, if you know the book of Acts, Paul's going to Rome, and that's where the, that's where the gospel's gonna, that's where the, the book of Acts is gonna end. So sort of prepping us to get there. So once they get to Philippi, we'll, we'll move quickly here. Once they get to Philippi, Luke tells us of their first convert. Um, it's a woman named Lydia. There's a woman named Lydia. Look in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, they're obviously in Philippi, 
we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. After she was baptized and her, and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged us to be faithful, judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So this is the second major scene in this, in this story for today is this, the conversion of Lydia. And Paul keeps the pattern that we've seen over and over again in Acts. He keeps the pattern going, which is to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Because his conviction that the Jews were to be restored in their Messiah, or to become a light that they had always failed to be in the Old Testament, Jews would be restored, and then on from them, then they would be rebuilt, so to speak, and then out of that restored house, then the Gentiles would come to faith in, in Jesus. And so every place he goes, if possible, where there's a synagogue or Jewish fellowship, Paul starts there. And next we're introduced to a woman among these Jewish women named Lydia. She's likely a fairly wealthy merchant. She sells purple garments to royal and political figures. These are really expensive things. And she's described as a worshiper of God. Now, this is a technical phrase that refers to converts to Judaism. So she probably would have been Gentile, but in her past converted to Judaism and is a faithful worshiper of the the one true God of Yahweh. She'd become a faithful Israelite, in other words. And so as Paul and company shared this word with these ladies, Luke says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And I love how Luke combines both the human and divine perspectives in this description of her salvation. Notice this. From the human angle, Paul starts preaching and Lydia's fixated. The others may have left... But she stuck around, she asked questions, she examined, she opened the scrolls, she believed, she considered the testimony, she paid attention, and then she ultimately believed that what was being spoken. There's the human side. Now the divine side. Why did she pay attention? Luke says it's because God opened her heart to pay attention. God had already worked behind the scenes, if you will, to open up her heart to the gospel. And that's how God works in every human heart that receives the gospel. So there's a lot of implications we could work out from here. We're not. I just want to draw out one implication that I think Luke wants his readers to know. This gives us assurance that the success of the mission rests on God. See that? The success of the mission rests on God, not ultimately on Paul or on you or I today. Amazing. Amazing truth, so encouraging. Only God can do the opening of a heart, and He does and promises to do it through the preaching of the gospel. And so after Lydia comes to faith in Christ, so does her entire household, and immediately there's an impulse toward hospitality. An impulse toward hospitality. And this is our last point. Look in verse 15. After she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so flowing out of this conversion was a desire to be helpful to Paul's team. 
she obviously was pretty wealthy. She had a larger home, many servants. That's the household idea. It's not just biological. There are also people that worked for her. She had a larger home with servants who could easily meet the team's needs while they stayed in Philippi and did, did ministry. And that's an incredible blessing for these guys. But by the end of the chapter, in verse 40, kind of make a note of that, it appears that her house has actually become the gathering place for this new fledgling church in Philippi. So it really is just, this has led to her conversion, has led to her home being the hub of ministry in this area. And what I want you to notice flowing out of Lydia is a deep desire to be used for ministry. A deep desire to be used for ministry. She wanted her home to be an outpost of the kingdom of God. I'm just going to make a quick application here. Is this how you guys think of your dorm room? Your quad? Something like that? Do you think of it as an outpost for ministry? And you think, wait a minute, Clay, we're at Liberty. This is a Christian university. Like, there's Christians here. Well, I know that. I went there. And I know that there are a lot of false converts at LU who desperately need help like this Macedonian. So many people confidently thinking they belong to Christ and never having repented of the idolatry of self. And they need help like this Macedonian man. If you're off campus, you're not in college, how about your apartment? Do you think about it as a gospel outpost? Do you use it for ministry? So just let Lydia be an example to you of of using her space God has given her. Let it be an example for you to use your space for God's mission. However that works itself out in your case. I understand all of you don't have the same capacity to do that. But just log this away. There's an impulse from her out of her conversion to be useful in in the mission and in the ministry. So... In our story today, we've, we've seen Jesus guide the team to Philippi. Ah, backwards again. We've seen the, him guide the, the team to Philippi, where Lydia's converted, and whose home becomes a hub for more ministry. And over the next several weeks, we're going to look at the rest of this ministry in the city. It's an incredible story, and I can't wait to work through it with you guys. But until we meet again, may the Lord continue to use this story to encourage you to trust Him as you make decisions and to find ways to be used by Him for the mission. Let's pray.